Good morning. I'm very grateful to Pastor Dick and the CBC leadership to open up their pulpit and share with me today. Uh, yes, I have done lots of things at CBC over the years. Actually, I've slept in this church multiple times because we used to do this event called the 30 hour famine between multiple churches. And we always ended up CBC at CBC for the night. And one reason was because you had some really good cooks who made breakfast for us on, on Saturday morning. And so that was a nice thing to share at the end of, the, of fasting for 30 hours. And actually way back in 2005, I think it was, our church along with CBC sent a team of youth mainly to Argentina and we went on a two-week mission trip there. So done a lot of things with CBC over the years. I recognize a few of the faces today, but not too many. But if your church is anything like First Baptist Church where I was, I know people come, people go. It's a lot of uh, turnover, a lot of people coming and going. Um, so maybe that could explain part of it. Um, but I was at First Baptist Church for 20 years, actually, as an associate and youth pastor. So if you know the average, I think the average stint of a youth pastor is like 18 months to three years. <laughs> I far exceeded that, so, um, but I was there for a long time, and actually our senior pastor, Tori Robinson, I don't know if any of you know him, uh, but he was there for 25 years, so actually we had the first and second longest tenures in the history of the church, which has been around for 175 years, um, and when he left and he was retiring, I knew it was going to happen because he had, you know, he had told us years in advance. And I really thought hard about, okay, do I want to stay here? Do I want to try to take on the senior pastor position? Do I want to apply for that? But I just really felt like it was time to move on. And after 20 years, I just felt like the church needed a change. They needed a new voice. And so they actually have called a new pastor who's starting, in, I think, on Easter. So uh, life keeps moving. Um, but I'm very grateful to be here today. And now what I do, um, my full-time job, and I don't know what I'll be doing in five years, but this is what I'm doing now, is I work as an ACT and SAT tutor. And so I work with a lot of high school students who are preparing for these tests, which they feel a lot of pressure about. And sometimes I'll work with them for weeks, months even. You know, I have one student that I've been working with since July. I'm still working with her. And, you know, we lead, we build up to these tests. So the last one was like the February ACT. And the last session before the test is always the most nerve-wracking for me. Because this is my last chance to impart any wisdom and I know the things that can happen on that test that are not about contents, but about how people might, you know, the nerves might get to them, the stress of being in that environment might get to them. There's always somebody in the room doing something annoying that could distract you. And I just know some of the things that can happen. And so I give them as many last words as I can. But in the end, I know I just have to release. And in that moment, it's going to be them and the test with their pencil. And hopefully they remember the things that I taught them and the, th the strategies that they learned and they execute and they perform as we expect them to. Um, but it's out of my control at that point. And so it's a very like um, humbling experience, I guess, as they go in to take that test for themselves. And it's not unlike what it is for us to pass on our values as Christians to the next generation. And the passage that we're looking at today is also not unlike my experience. Because in Deuteronomy 6, although strictly speaking it's not a narrative passage, it comes in the midst of a larger story. So when Moses gives us these words in Deuteronomy 6, often giving us the words of God in the process, this is like his last chance before the people of Israel go into the promised land. And they've been there before, on the precipice of going into that land that had been promised for so long. If you know the history of the people of Israel, you know that, I mean, you can trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve and to Genesis 1, 
But you can, largely speaking, it starts with Abraham, right? In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. He promises them that he's going to give him offspring. He's going to make him to a great nation. And he's going to make Abraham a blessing to the entire world. And he's going to give him this land. So he's got these promises in front of him. And so Abraham doesn't have a child for a long time. Eventually, he has the child of promise, Isaac, when he's very, and his wife are both very old. God comes through, um, delivers on that promise. And so now Isaac is a child of promise, and the covenant passes that God made with Abraham passes to Isaac. And then Isaac has these two kids, Jacob and Esau. And, you know, there's all kinds of history we get into here. But the, the line starts going through Jacob, who becomes the father of Israel. He has 12 sons, and they make up the 12 tribes of Israel. But as they're in Canaan, which was the promised land, a famine hits, they go to Egypt. And eventually, when they're in Egypt, they become slaves, basically, to the Egyptian rulers who were intimidated by the rapid growth of the Israelite people. They thought they had to do something to curb that growth. But they made them slaves. And for 400 years, that was kind of the condition that Israel found itself in. 400 years. That's a lot of generations who came and went and never saw the promises that were made to their ancestors fulfilled in their lifetime. And even and then God raises up Moses. We know that story, right? The Exodus, the ten plagues, and God delivers the, the people of Israel with a mighty display of his power. And they go into the wilderness and they get on the precipice of this of this promised land, and the people freak out. Because they look into this promised land, they see powerful nations, they see people who look larger than them, and only two of the people they send to scout out the land give a positive report. And they are so dismayed by this report that they decide they're going to turn back. They picked a leader and everything. They're going to go back to Egypt. And at that point, this was not their first sort of rebellion against God. And God had enough and said, you know, this generation right here, they're not going to see the promised land. And you're going to wander in the wilderness. It's going to be your children who take the land, not you. And this was even included Moses because through his own failure at a certain point, he wasn't going to go to the promised land either, and God told him this. And that brings us to Deuteronomy 6, because that's where they are. They're at this crossroads. Who are the people going to be? Are they going to repeat the mistakes of their forefathers? Are they going to believe the promises of God and strike out to this new land and take it as God had promised them? This is about a crossroads of moment as you could ever come in your life. And so when you read Deuteronomy 6, you have to remember that's the context of the story. And so let's go into the scripture a little bit and talk about this. Okay, so it starts in Deuteronomy 6.1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. And so the promise that God has put in front of the people is, is very clear. And this is repeated throughout Deuteronomy, that if you believe and you obey and you keep my commands, it's going to go well for you. God is going to bless you. But if you don't follow those commands, if you don't obey, like your fathers before you, it's going to lead to disaster. And God spells this out very clearly. Okay? And so that's what's at stake here. It's not just whether, you know, it's not just they're going to get a grade on this. This is going to impact their lives, their well-being in the future, and the well-beings of their children and their grandchildren. So in verse 3, 
Moses says, Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And I don't know if you can hear it in Moses' words. I feel it. Maybe this is just my interpretation of it, but Moses, this is so heartfelt for Moses. And if you've ever been non-SAT, ACT tutor, but if you've ever been a parent and you're sending your kid off to college and you know the pitfalls that could happen there, that do happen there to some people, maybe you can sort of resonate with what Moses is feeling here. But this is on a much bigger scale. This is his last chance. He knows that he, he wants these people to follow them. And sometimes in Deuteronomy, you also hear the heart of God. Oh, if you would just listen. God wants to bless them. He wants to pour out his blessings on them. This is not like he's hoping that they fail. He's hoping that they're gonna, that he doesn't have to follow through this blessing. He wants them this to happen for them. And so always remember that too when you read Deuteronomy. That's God's heart. And in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know on football games how people put up those signs that say like John 3.16? I'm pretty sure that if observant Jews did that, they would put Deuteronomy 6.4 there. Because this is one of the foundational passages in Jewish thought and practice. So this passage, combined with another from Deuteronomy and another from the book of Numbers, is called the Shema. And this is a group of verses that they recite twice daily. When you see them talking about writing it on your door frames and wearing your foreheads, there are Jews who take that literally. They literally do these things. Okay, so this is not just like a metaphor to them. They do because they think that if they, so, if they are so engrounded by this passage, by this scripture, that it will lead to change them, who they are, and will determine the way that they live. And so this verse is foundational because you can hear, the Lord our God is one. In this day, this is a very revolutionary thought. You know, God is one. Most people were not monotheists. Most people believed in multiple gods. And so I've heard stories in, like, Viking England, like, you know, when the Vikings were kind of raiding England in, like, the 9th and 10th century. It wasn't a big deal for the Vikings to convert to Christianity in a lot of cases because they're like, hey, we'll take another god. Sure, that's fine. Give us another one. And you can't, you can't go wrong with another god. You know, you have somebody else who maybe to bless you, to protect you, watch over you. Sure, we'll take another god. And this has been true in, for pagan and polytheistic religions throughout human history. Like Hinduism, they don't necessarily mind having Jesus as a son of God. They're like, we got lots of sons of gods. Sure, one more. Well, the more the merrier. But in Jewish thought, it's not like that. The Lord our God is one. There's no other. And you hear this, this theme repeated in the Ten Commandments. Where the first two ten, where are the first two commandments? No idols and no other gods. And those aren't the same thing, although we often think of them interchangeably. But it sets right from the foundations that we're not going to worship anyone else. This is not like uh, Yahweh and all these other gods kind of situation. Now, it's only this God that we worship. Because, and again, in that day, like, you, you, people thought very locally about God. Like, you had a God who, like, they had jurisdictions. It's almost like today, like, we had a God in Ossining and a God of Terrytown and a God of, of Peekskill. And when you went from one town to another, you had to pay respect to the other gods. That's kind of how they thought back then. And, and what this verse is, is contributing to is this, this mindset where, no, that's not the case. There's one God, and his jurisdiction is everything. And, that's what, and we worship him for that reason. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, of course, this verse also comes, kind of, comes in the middle between Jewish and Christians as they debate 
about the nature of God, because Christians, we would agree with this, right? I heard amens when I read 6.4. But the Jews, the Jews look at us and they're like, we think you have a counting problem here because you say the Lord God is one, but you got the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. And according to our quick math, that's three, not one. And so this is a point of contention. You can watch YouTube debates about it. But as Christians, we would say the same thing. The Lord is God, the Lord our God is one. But when we say that, we mean one in terms of unity. Also in terms of number, it's weird. It's weird math. I'll give the Jews that. I understand their dilemma here and why they look at us like we got some problems here with our math skills. I do understand that. But in Christian thought, and the, it took a long time for the church to have to work, really fully work this out, by the way. This was not an instantaneous thing. And there were definitely competing views in the early church history. Some people thought in terms of as a sort of a, a philosophical movement called modalism where God existed as the Father for a while, then he kind of transformed the Son, and then he transformed into the Holy Spirit. And so there were never distinct persons um, who were that. But the church, as it worked this out, decided when it looked at what Jesus said, and when it looked at what the scriptures said, no, we have one God unified throughout three persons. That these three persons have a relationship with each other, they have fellowship, which, by the way, becomes sort of the foundation for other math we do, because we talk about marriage, right? What do we say? A man leaves his, or, or a woman leaves his, a man leaves his family, joined to a woman, they become how many flesh? One. So we have one plus one equals one. Again, weird math, I know, right? But, but the Trinity really creates the, the basis for that kind of thinking, okay? And really, why are we as humans relational at all? Because we're so relational. There have been a lot of studies about how unhappy people are in, how, in, amongst youth. I've been listening to some podcasts about this, not even Christian podcasts, but just like sort of regular secular academic podcasts. And everybody's really trying to deal with this, this fact that people are feeling really unhappy. And one of the big things they've linked it to is that people feel very lonely. But there are consequences when we as humans don't have fellowship with each other. And this is not the highlight of today's message, but it's like sort of a an impact of the, the nature of God, because we are made the image of God so that we too, like God, want fellowship. Like the Father, the Son, the Spirit love each other. They are dependent on each other in a sense. They, they work with each other. And that creates sort of the, the nature of humans that we too, as humans, want that sort of relationship. And so Deuteronomy 6.4 is important for Jewish people. It's important for us as Christians. And now the idea there's only one God isn't so revolutionary. That's only because we have so many years of Jewish Christian thought in Islam as well. All right, but in, in Moses' day, this is a revolutionary idea. All right, moving along with verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your strength. These are the commandments that I give you today that are upon, to be upon your hearts. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, you might remember that Jesus also repeated this. And he was asked what the greatest commandment was. I believe that, I don't remember the official number, it might be 613, it probably depends on how you count it, but there are over 600 commands in the Old Testament. It's a lot of commands, right? We're like, some of us have trouble remembering the 10, but they got like 600 of these things. And so it could be hard to remember it. So someone came to Jesus and they asked, what is the most important commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And these two ideas of loving God with all your heart and loving 
your neighbors, yourselves, are intertwined. In 1 John, John is very adamant. You can't say that you love God if you don't love people because God created people. They are made in his image. So we can't go, we can't go on hating other people and then saying that we love God. Those ideas are incompatible with each other. And so even though they don't necessarily talk about loving your neighbor here specifically, it's, it's definitely implied. All the law comes down to this. All the law comes back to this idea of love, that these commands are about directing us to love God and directing us how to love each other. And that's important to remember because commands can take, a life of, they can take on a life of their own. And they often do in religious groups, not just Christianity. But take the command that, it's, one, it's like the one Ten Commandment that we just kind of ignore, honestly, as Christians. And that's the Sabbath command, honor the Sabbath. I'm not saying that we could be like just thumb our nose at it necessarily, but I don't just, I just don't think we think about it very much. Now, in Jewish thought, the Sabbath is the seventh day, and you weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, right? Um, now, you could have a discussion about what constitutes work. That's worth thinking about because there were definitely, there were definitely different theories about that, how far you could walk and how big of a load you could carry. All these came up in conversation about that. But in Jesus' day, the Sabbath had taken on sort of its own, had become its own entity in a way. And there's this moment where Jesus is in a synagogue, and there's a man there who, I think he's a deformed hand. And the Pharisees, the religious teachers, are just waiting for Jesus to heal him, because they think that he's going to. And then they're going to accuse him that he broke the Sabbath rules, which is pretty silly anyway, because does it ever seem like Jesus works that hard when he heals people? doesn't really, because he just says stuff, he touches people, and boom, it's done. So it doesn't seem to be like a big deal that he's actually, like, he's not breaking a sweat doing this. And so you can say that on one level, the Pharisees are, they're just like causing trouble. They're just looking for a reason to accuse. That's what they're about here. But, you know, I think there was a legitimate concern among Jewish people that you had to keep the Sabbath. And they were very, I think, afraid to break that command. And then Jesus' response to them that day deals with the fact, like, you know, that the Sabbath was not made like man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. So in other words, the Sabbath is not supposed to take on its, its own, become its own entity as a law. This was there so that people could have rest, so that we could get back into the rhythms of creation and get that rest for our soul that we so desperately need. Because bad things happen when we're overworked and we don't take that rest. And so the, the intention in Jesus' mind and teaching is the Sabbath was meant as a blessing for people but now it's become this entity that you have to serve in order to be a good Jew. And Jesus chafes at that idea. And that's why it's so important to ground our understanding of the law and love. Because if we don't, these laws take on a life of their own. They become the, all, and they become the entity that we serve rather than a means to an end of loving God and loving other people. But I think that's exceptionally important for us to remember as Christians. And this is true for any religious people. Because that stuff's easy to control. The action... It's easier to control than the heart. Like making, getting your heart in the right place is immensely difficult. But focusing on the external, super easy. All right, moving along in these uh, verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So in other words, keep talking about this stuff. But I think there's, I think 
I don't want to make a big deal of the order here, but I think there is an important thing to note that this part about talking about the commands comes after the fact that we're actually loving God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. Then we talk about the commands. Because if we talk about these commands and we make this an emphasis, but we're not loving God, then there's a, there's a failure on our part. And these commands are not going to translate. The people are not going to, like, these commands are going to seem onerous, they're going to seem difficult. They're going to seem like a burden that we need to carry instead of life-giving. And so I think that's why the love is spoken about first and emphasized more as than just the talking about the commands. But there is this emphasis that, yeah, we're supposed to talk about this stuff, that we are supposed to share this with other people. But again, in the context of loving God, and I believe loving our neighbor as well. You know, right now in our day, you could argue that we are at a crossroads moment as well. So Christianity in America is, is changing. There's no getting around it. If you look at the numbers in our country of people who used to be Christians and who are not Christians any longer, the numbers could be really alarming. So I think when I first started ministry, the numbers of people who identified as a Christian in America was somewhere around 75 to 80 percent. Now it's down to, I believe, 63 percent. That's 2022. And what's happened as the numbers of Christians has decreased, the number of nuns, not like the Catholic kind who wear the habits, but um, people who identify with no religion. So they're not necessarily atheists or even agnostics, but they don't, they don't relate to any one organized religion. This number has grown to, I think, 30% now. And so it's higher than the number of evangelicals in America. It's higher than the number of Catholics. It's higher than the number of any one religious group in the US. And so a lot of Christians, as you can understand, are very afraid of what this means. What is our country gonna be like in a generation or two? Because the numbers are even worse when you start looking at like people above a certain age and people below a certain age. And the numbers are even less in favor of Christianity if you start doing that. I want to be careful here because there are a lot of people who have the reason why this is happening. And I don't think there's any one reason for why this is happening. It's complicated. We always want as people so badly to find the one, like the smoking gun, the silver bullet, the thing that explains everything else. And for this, I don't think it exists. I just don't. But I do think that a big factor, well, let me say, let me give a wrong reason why I think it is. I hear Christians saying a lot. Well, look at the younger generation. You know how we are with younger generations, right? Every generation is like this. It doesn't matter what generation you're part of. But you look at that generation coming up, and you think they got issues, right? <laughs> you're like, they got problems. Those millennials, they don't work, they don't do this, they don't do that. And, you know, it's like kind of this get off my lawn kind of moment that every generation has. So it's not, I'm not saying this is one, anyone of us, because I have it too. Sometimes when I look at younger people, well, because I work with younger people so much, I'm far more charitable towards them, honestly. Because I hear a lot of the things that people are saying about them, I'm like, yeah, that's not true. Like in my experience, I don't see that happening that much. But anyway, one thing that I hear Christians saying about the younger generation is they just want to sin. That's why they're leaving religion. I don't think that's true. I think that they have a very different idea of what constitutes sin. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. But I, I believe that this generation has a strong sense of morality. You just might not agree with it. But that doesn't mean that it's not there. And so just to dismiss them and say, you don't care about right and wrong, it's not going to get you anywhere. Because they're like, yeah, we do. We think we have a good sense of right and wrong. In fact, we don't agree with your sense of right or wrong anymore. 
it's really weird. Like, because when I grew up, like, I think the church just inherently had the, the, the moral high ground in culture. And I can tell you, as I work with youth for many years, I don't think they think that way anymore. They don't think that we have the moral high ground. Look, there are some good reasons for that. The church has done a lot of bad things, if we're being honest. You know, like, and it's not just the Catholic Church, which we could look at and talk about the, the abuse scandals there, but we see this in the Southern Baptist Church. That's firmly evangelical. And in a lot of interest, the church has not really done much about those issues. I'm not saying that's every church, you know, hashtag not all churches, but that doesn't mean that much to people because they look at us and just like we kind of do this broad brushstroke to talk about the youth of today, they do the same thing with older people. So, so we don't have the monopoly on that. And they look and they're like, you guys are talking about morality, but we don't necessarily see it. Yeah, you care about these issues, particularly about issues that have to do with, with sexuality, but you don't seem to care about like greed. You don't seem to care about equality in the way that we care about equality. So I'm throwing that out there as something that I think I want you to be careful of when you speak. Now, you don't have to agree with me, by the way. I'm not speaking as an authoritative figure on this, because like I said, this is common. But as I've studied this and I've, as I've looked at, you know, as I've worked with you, I've heard a lot of different viewpoints out there, I do think that we need to avoid the arguments. Um, and I think it's really important to under, for us to understand that if we're going to pass on our faith to the generations that come after us, they have to see us living that faith. They're not convinced that they're seeing that. Again, I don't, I don't really know this church well, so I'm not, there's not judgment on you. I don't know. But I think it's something that we could always be true of us as Christians, that we fall short of the mark. I also want to be careful when I say this, because like sometimes a lot of parents out there and they hear this and they're like, I failed as a Christian, that's why my kid doesn't believe anymore. And to be honest, if you're a parent out there, I believe that you could do everything right, you could make all the right decisions, you could be a, like a shining example of the love of Jesus Christ, and your children could still leave the faith. I believe that. Because again, it's complicated. So if, if you hear this message, I don't want you like putting that guilt on you like you failed. Now, we probably have failed because we're people and we fail a lot. Um, and if you have failed, you know one of the best things you can do? Admit it. We're covered by the grace of God. Like, why should we be so defensive? I mean, I understand why we are as humans, but if we believe that Jesus is going to forgive us, and, you know, I don't want to say that, like, flippantly, like, ah, it doesn't matter the damage we cause other people because God's going to forgive us. I don't mean it that way. But we should be able to admit our failures to our kids so they can see, like, oh, yeah, like, we've changed our mind about this, or we realized that's a bad thing that we were doing. We weren't treating people well. Because that's a lot of what this culture is looking at. Like, how do you treat other people? When I say this culture, I mean, like, the, especially the younger generations. And again, you can disagree with them about certain points of their morality. But make sure that you understand this. They're looking and they're saying, we don't like the way you treat people. And so for us, if, we, if we've come to realize that, admit it to them. You know, I feel like one of the worst things that we can do as, as parents is not let our kids understand this. Like they don't really know what we're about. Like they know what we say we're about, but they don't necessarily know what we're actually about. So they can hear us talking about the Jesus stuff, they can hear us talking about the church stuff. But that doesn't mean that they're going to believe because they might look at us and say, yeah, but I, don't, I don't really see it in your life. And so I think one of the best ways we can help our kids understand us is to let them know the times that we were wrong, the things that we struggle with, and be upfront about that. I think sometimes we're afraid because we're afraid that the but that's going to open the church and us up to criticism 
which it probably does, but you know what? They're criticizing us anyway, so there's your freedom. They're going to be criticized anyway, so you might as well be right. You might as well do what's good, and you might as well do what's going to help your kids make that transition better. So I really believe that's true. If you want to pass on the generation, if you want to pass on your, your faith, for the coming generation, that that's what we need to be about as Christians. And look, again, there are other things here. There's like the rise of the internet and, and a whole bunch of other factors. But look, the internet is a horse that has left the barn. It's not going back in. It's out there. It's galloping around. We can't stop it. It's a stampede. So I do think that we can control how we act, though. Because to me, that seems like one of the factors that we can actually do something about. You know, I, I just believe that. And so. If you're out there and you're worried about the coming generation, you're worried about what's going to be, what America is going to be like after you're gone, what this, what the say the church is going to be like after you're gone. Love God. Love people. Let that be your mission. Don't let these other, don't let one command, as good as it might be, take on a life of its own and define the mission of the church. Again, another, another sort of stereotype that I hear from the other side is that like they know what the church is against. They don't know what the church is for. And I think it's very easy for us to fall into that trap as we think about what's right and wrong. And we want to live right with people, rather, we should. We also have to think about how our actions are going to impact um, the people who are coming after us. Not by like chasing us, but I mean, like, the generations coming after us. So, I was watching a show called The Last Kingdom, which is a show on Netflix, and it, it, um, it's a historical fiction. I'm not under any illusion that's telling the complete true story, um, but it tells the story of England in like ninth, ninth century during the reign of King Alfred. So I don't know if I have any people who like history buffs from that time period, um, but the Vikings were kind of just like wreaking havoc on England, which was primarily inhabited by Anglo-Saxons. There wasn't a unified England yet. There were all these different kingdoms. and King Alfred was a Christian king and what was known as the last kingdom, the last Anglo-Saxon kingdom that had not yet fallen to the Vikings. And Alfred towed the line and he fought back and he, allowed, and he helped the Anglos, led the Anglo-Saxons to sort of driving the Vikings out eventually. Um, but there's this point in the show that's depicting the end of Alfred's days. Now, I don't know that this is what he thought or this is what he was worried about, but it makes, it makes for good drama. And there's this one moment where he's sharing with his other leader, who's actually not a Christian, more of a pagan, and he's sharing with him that he's afraid of what's going to come next, not of his death, not of what's going to happen to him in the afterlife. He's not really afraid of that. He's afraid of what's going to happen to his kingdom when he's gone. So he asks these questions. Who will reign? Who will make laws? Which God will be praised? Because in Alfred's mind, and this is this was a real possibility, the Vikings could just sweep over Anglo-Saxon England and lay waste to it, and there'd be no churches left, and there'd be no there are no, no Christians left, and it would just be it would just be like going back to the pagan roots that England once, you know, the people in England once believed. So he's he's afraid of this. And this guy who's counseling him just says, You've had your time. Now it's gonna be the time to love it. And it's a powerful thought because we have our time now. However you feel about this issue, about what's happening in this country, in the next generation. You have a chance now. This is your time. Again, you can disagree with me. I could be wrong. But I don't think the problems that we're seeing are going to be solved by political action. I just don't. I don't think we can legislate our way out of this. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. I don't think that's going to fix this problem. 
And, you know, I don't know what God has in store. Who knows, right? And the church goes through periods of time when it wanes and waxes. And maybe the struggles that we're going through now will lead to great revival. Who knows, right? You have your chance today. Do the things that you know you're supposed to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbors as yourself. And let that be what people see the church and Christians are about. And we'll see what happens. If that can maybe change the tide, extend the tide, or move this, these numbers in the rest of the direction. But you have the chance today, right now, 